question this morning that we're faced with is why do you serve God? Why do we follow Jesus? I think it's very helpful from time to time. If you're like me, you can get, you can get busy. And this is summer, so it's extra busy. Right, church? And you can be, you can be doing things. Things that people would look at and say, well, that's probably a good thing. In fact, things that God's Word may even command us to do. But why do we do it? In Judges chapter 17 and 18 this morning, we're going to look at a question that's also a main driving idea. Why do we serve God? I don't know if you've ever felt used by someone before. I want you to go back in, in the files of your memory and think of a person or a group that only came to you when they wanted something from you. They only talked to you when you could do something for them. You got it? And if you can't find anybody, if that's the case, you are unique. Because most of us have been. I remember when I was in college, my friend from North Alabama had been given a gift by his church and it was a big box of Laffy Taffies. You know, Laffy Taffies and you chew them all day and they stick in your teeth and they'll pull teeth out if you're not too too careful. Laffy Taffies. And we would have guys from the dorm come and knock on our door. We would open the door to our dorm room and they would walk in and create conversation making their way to the Laffy Taffy box. And then when they would get over to the box, they would say, oh, by the way, you don't mind if I have one. Do you? And they would say, no, that's fine. And then they would get the piece of candy, open it, start eating it, and slowly make conversation as they made their way back out to the door to leave. They didn't come in for conversation or relationship. They came for candy. And what we're going to see this morning from Judges chapter 17 and 18 in the Bible is the account of what we could call a sellout preacher and then a crooked businessman. People in that time looked at God like many people looked at Nate and me. Those guys have the Laffy Taffies. They're, they have something that can benefit me. And the question, for, for not those of you here today that say, I don't believe in Jesus, or I'm not saved, I'm still working towards it. But for those of us that claim to love Jesus Christ, and many of us that are actually involved in serving Jesus Christ, You're giving to the work of the Lord. You're involved in the life of this church. You're trying to pray with your family. You're trying to walk and follow Christ. You're trying to follow after the One who paid for your sin. There is a question that stands out from time to time that we have to, if we're going to be real, we have to address the question, why do I serve God? And the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of us, it can creep into our life who are not that much different than people in pagan religions who worship the local deity, who make the sacrifices so that things will go well. So let's go... That's always encouraging, right? Your pastor gets up and says, we're not that much different than pagans from time to time. Just, Just go with me on that thought. And this, many people serve God out of what they can get from Him as opposed to serving God because He's the only one worth serving. And serving God because He is the one that's worthy of every single thing that we could give Him. Our lives, everything. So we're either going to approach it by God, I'm serving you so that my life can be blessed, or I'm serving you because you deserve it. Judges chapter 17, 
The Bible begins in verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And the mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a... What's it say, church? A carved image in clear violation of the Bible which says, Do not create idols. And a metal image. Now therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, the mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod, which was a covering that only the priest were to wear. And household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest in clear violation of the Bible. Verse 6, here's the explanation. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. Verse 11, And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, notice this key phrase, Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Biblical background tells us that the Levites were one of the tribes of Israel. And the Levites were the sole group who were, who were, they were over the responsibility of the priesthood. They were the ones who were able to make intercession between the people and God. They were the ones who were able to make sacrifices. But yet here this young Levite in a time and a culture in which everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to convince people that they're wrong and you're right? Have you ever had an argument with someone in your family, someone at work, and you just can't see why they can't see that they're wrong? And from their perspective, they just cannot believe that you are so dull and so dense that you can't see that they're clearly right and that you're clearly wrong. And then we walk away from the situation thinking, they are so stubborn. And we hear them as they go out the other door. She, he is so stubborn. Because you see, times really have not changed, have they? Most of us, we do what is right in our own eyes. And that's a phrase in the book of Judges to say that the Bible was cast aside. That the Word of God was no longer revered as the Word of God. I really hope that you can make it next week. 
I'm going to speak about moral decline in a culture. I'm going to address things that we see in the news, the current crisis that we're facing as a culture. And I believe that God's Word speaks very clearly about that from the end of Judges because the decline was such that it ushered in what later to be became known as the kingship. In other words, morality has a direct correlation to how prosperous a society is. Everybody got that? People who say morality doesn't have anything to do with politics, it doesn't have anything to do with law, economics, that's simply not true. And if we thought about it for a few moments, we would see why. But that's just a little advertisement for next week. I pray that you're here. It's a very important message. But this was a day in which this young Levite priest left what he should have been taking care of. He was from Bethlehem like Jesus, but Jesus went on His ministry and Jesus went to share the Gospel. Jesus went to give. This Levite went to see what he could get. Jesus came and Jesus went. He came to this earth and lowered Himself. Jesus came, born of a virgin, and Jesus humbled Himself to be born as a Jew. And then when Jesus grew to a full-grown man, He humbled Himself to the point that He didn't even have a house to live in. Jesus was a poor man. He was homeless. Do you realize that our Lord Jesus Christ, when He actually began His ministry, He was actually homeless? There was no deed to a home or a shack or a tent that said, owned by Jesus of Nazareth. But yet this young Levite said, I'm going to go out under the authority of God who has set me up as a Levite to take care of people, to minister to people. I'm going to go see where I can get fed. Somebody to take care of me. Now, if you notice at the beginning of the story, you have this guy named Micah. And he steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. Now, there are some people who get confused and they think that she is actually um, Delilah because Delilah was paid the same amount of money for Samson. There's nothing in the text that says that. So if you run into someone who says that this is Delilah and that this is her son... That's simply not in the text, alright? That's just a little FYI for our deep Bible readers. But he steals this massive amount of money from his mom. I remember as a kid, I watched a show that cast robbers in kind of a cool light. You know how impressionable you are as a kid? You're watching, you're watching cartoons, you're watching a show, and all of a sudden you want to be them. I heard somebody say that TV doesn't influence kids. What else do you not know, right? I remember we watched an episode of Zorro as kids and we'd be beating each other with sticks the rest of the day. Just because we saw sword fighting. How can I become Zorro? So I saw this show and it had robbers. And the robbers, you know, were kind of like the cool guys and got away with stuff. So it was like a five or six or seven years old. I went to my mom's purse and I opened up her purse and I said, I'm going to be a robber. I'm going to be a thief. And I took a nickel from her money pouch and I put the nickel in my little money collection in my room. And then conviction set in. It was like God told my little heart as a child, you are a thief. And so what I later did is I later put the nickel back. And then I learned from my parents, they didn't know about that when I was you know, a little kid, that in the Old Testament, if you stole, um, for, for those of you in law enforcement, are, are, I guess any law people, it wasn't a criminal offense, it was a tort offense. In other words, you had to pay back four times or more what you stole. Time out. Let that thought think. If you stole something from someone in today's court of law and you were 
you were convicted by the court that you had to pay back four times? Instead of being able to go and um, basically be taken care of to a certain extent in jail. Just think about it. A little different. I said, well, I need to go back and pay. So I got a quarter. And I went and put the quarter back in my mom's money pouch. And then when I was a teenager, I said, you know what? I stole a, a, a nickel from my mom. So I went back and put a dollar in. Because the conscience doesn't rest, does it? Even if we act like it's not there. So here is Micah. Growing up in a twisted, jacked up, perverted time in which everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And he steals this money from his mom, who obviously was not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And then he comes back to his mom and he says, Mom, I stole it. I know you put out a curse on whoever stole it. I don't want to be cursed. She gets excited, you know, because sons often in mom's minds can do no wrong. You know, and some of you sweet ladies, I've seen it before. I've coached. Sports for kids. The mom thinks that their son is supposed to be uh, the, the point guard. Not all the time, right? Not all the time. Not everything is for everybody. And so she forgives him and says, well, what we're going to do is I'm going to uh, dedicate the silver to the Lord. And guess what they do with the silver? They create an idol. They create an idol to the Lord. Now right there, that should cause us to, to realize how far down the culture had slidden. How far the culture had gotten away from God. Because when you say, God, I want to do something great for you. You've done so much in my life. I want to give back a little of what you've given to me. Let's see. Uh, give to missions. No, nobody's doing that. I'm living in the time of judges. Let's see. Maybe I can give sacrifice. No, that's, that's too far to go to the main area in Shiloh where they're doing the sacrifice. What I'll do to honor the God who exists above all else, I'll make an idol. And that's what most of us think. Because we look and we say, how could you think that you would honor God with an idol? So we see all of this clear disobedience of God's Word to where every person did what was right in their own eyes. So you get Micah, who is raised in a family that compromises. And then the young Levite comes. And the young Levite is more than willing to compromise to be a man's personal priest. In other words, he was a preacher for hire. Stop and think about that for just a moment. A preacher for hire. He wanted to go to wherever people would take care of him to preach whatever they wanted him to say. Back when I was in Bible college, there was a guy, um, great guy, and he, w- he felt that the Lord was leading him to go to another ministry. He was working with this church. And one of the lead deacons in the church said, we don't want to lose you. What we're going to do is offer you more money. And he said, if I stayed or went to a certain ministry based upon you paying me more money or less, he says, you don't want me anyway. Amen? Amen. What we need to do today is to take a step back in our lives, in my life, in the life of this church, in the life of our nation, and say, are we simply there to get what we can from other people, or are we there to serve Christ? So you have all of this compromise that's adding together, and then this young Levite compromises for money and security, and then he finally gets bought out. Well, here's where it really begins to take off in chapter 18. The Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 18, In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So here's what had happened. When Dan went into the land, the Amorites went to war with them, and they pressed them up into the hills. Long story short, 
The Danites, the tribe of Dan, were unwilling to actually go to battle as God had told them to do. They were unwilling to fight for what needed to be fought for. But yet what they do is they take the coward's way out. Notice there in verse number 2. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah to Eshtal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And so they come and they begin to explore the land. And they say in verse 3, when they go to the house of Micah, they recognize the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, this is how Micah has dealt with me. He has hired me. I have become his priest. And then they said in verse 5, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. Now notice here that the priest never goes to God, but notice what he automatically tells them. The priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Here is the story of what should be a man of God representing the people of God praying, being an intercessor, a mediator, but yet he doesn't even consult with God. That's how low it had gone. And then in verse 7, these five men, they go scout out this area called Laish. The people are very unarmed. They're not expecting an attack. So what they do is they go back in verse 11. These five spies from the tribe of Dan, they get 600 men who have weapons of war. It's noted in verse 11, also there in verse 16, and also um, in verse uh, verse 16 as well. And these guys come, 600 men, and they're going to declare war on this town. There's no sign, there's no declaration of war. But then, in verse 18, they come to the priest, and the priest tells them, what are you doing? Because they begin to plunder Micah's Little mini pagan temple. And he said to them, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us. This is what the Danites are saying to the priest. And be a father to us and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And notice verse 20. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So guess what happens? They come, they give him a bigger offer, and he says, I'll go with the bigger offer. In other words, I'm in this for myself. And they steal all of these pagan relics. It gets very interesting in verse 21. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house called out and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I have made and the priest, you go away and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and Micah saw that they were too strong for him. He turned and went back to his home. Kind of a crazy story, isn't it? And the narrative continues that the tribe of Dan goes, they bushwhack this area, and they rename it after themselves, and resettle to where there really wasn't a fight. It's a story in regards to the tribe of Dan of a people who said, God, we're unwilling to do what you called us to do to take the area that you have given us to take. What we're going to do is take the easy way out. 
And as far as Micah, here's some heart checkup questions. Notice back in chapter 17, there in verse number 13, he says, now that I have a priest, my own priest, my own preacher, my personal religious worker, now I know that the Lord will prosper me. He didn't mean prosper spiritually. He meant that God would help him become more wealthy. So here's a question if you're taking notes with us along in your worship guide. There are several questions that we're going to have to ask ourselves in relation to this story. Number one, do you serve God for what He can do for you? You know, some of us, I could say probably most of us in here, we believe the Bible. You're here on a Sunday morning, especially if you're a member of Rocky Mount Baptist Church. This is not an option. Amen? This is our rule of authority. This is it. It stops here. The buck starts and it stops with Jesus and His Word. But yet some of us react against liberal Christianity, which liberal Christianity for decades basically told people, we're not really sure if Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, it's probably not possible that there is such a thing such as a heaven and a literal hell. In fact, there's so much that we don't know and the Bible has errors and so forth. But what we can do is we can come to the Bible and we can look for truths inside the Bible that help us live a nice life. It's how to have a good life right now. It's how to get along with your neighbor and have low stress with your relationships at work. It's how to have a good marriage. And we're not really sure what's going to happen in eternity, but we know that Jesus is a good moral teacher. So if we follow Him, the essence of Christianity is just simply love. They don't define it, but simply love. Now, conservatives who actually believe the Bible... They say, you know what? That's not true. The Bible teaches that there is an actual heaven and a hell. Right, church? That's what it teaches. It teaches that Jesus actually physically, literally rose from the dead. The Bible tells us that there is one way to heaven and that's only through Jesus. We believe those truths. But yet the liberals will say, life is all about, God is all about you having a happy life here. Now, we as conservatives often swing. And we don't know what we're saying, but we go along these lines of reasoning. And we tell people, just like Micah thought, although we wouldn't relate it to that, we say, the reason why you need to give your life to Jesus Christ is because you need, you don't want to go to hell, do you? How many wants to go to hell? And usually if you're at a youth conference or something, there will be some little smart aleck, a seventh grader, who will stick his hand up real quick trying to be funny, and then the youth leader will look at him saying, get your hand down or you will not receive a popsicle after the sermon tonight. And he quickly and awkwardly puts his hand back down. Nobody wants to say if they understand it unless you're standing around with a group of guys who are trying to play the tough man card and they say this. I don't mind going to hell. All the people I know are going to hell and we're just going to have a big beer bash when we get there. That's what we're, No, no. People are serious. People say, I don't want to... If hell is real, forever and ever and ever... To where there is no chance of ever getting out. C.S. Lewis says the door to hell is locked from the inside. Because people hate God. I mean, nobody wants to go to hell. So sometimes in the way that we present Jesus to people, we go along this line of logic. We say, well, you don't want to go to hell forever. I mean, how many of you want to be in smoke and fire and brimstone for eternity? 
People say, no, not me, not me, Pastor Jeff. Say, okay, what you need to do is you need to pray this prayer. You need to give your heart to Jesus because you sure don't want to go to hell. And whether it comes from liberal Christianity that says there is no heaven or hell, or whether it comes from conservative Christianity, both are based out of self-interest. It's what we can get from God. Are y'all tracking with me? The liberals say you can get out of God a good life here and there. The conservatives who believe the Bible say you can get a good life, get a good deal out of God. It's His grace that's free so that you can get out of hell and enjoy heaven forever. But the question is, are we like Micah and we say, boy, I, I love my church. I love my church. I love my Sunday school class. Because you see, Pastor Jeff, when I go to Sunday school, people love me. It's where someone tells me, hey, how are you doing? They know my name and they care about me. I love when I go to the service and we sing some of those old hymns of the faith. Because for me, I remember growing up as a little boy, a little girl in church, and my grandfather or my grandmother would sing before we had air conditioning and before we had sound systems. And when it was back, that's the only songs that anybody knew were hymns because that's all there was. Maybe a southern gospel once in a while. And when we sing those, it just fills my heart up and I like it because it helps me. Some may say, you know what, I enjoy the hymns. I also enjoy some of the new stuff because it just helps me to get in that lifestyle and that attitude of worship. I enjoy enjoy the music. I enjoy coming and being able to hear sermons even if I don't disagree, even if I don't fully agree. Something may be wrong with a preacher because he drinks too much caffeine every morning. I don't know. It's an entertainment. Even if you don't like... You see, here's the thing. I like it because I like it because it benefits me. The reason why I come and I serve in the church is because, yes, I've gone through some tough stuff in my life. Jesus has been good to me. But when I'm able to serve in the church, it makes me feel so good. Pastor Jeff, I wish I could tell you. I don't want to broadcast it, but when they pass the plate, God has done so much work in my life that when I give to missions. And when I give to the work of Jesus in Rocky Mount Baptist Church, the feeling, it just feels so good. I give. I I give for me. I want to join Rocky Mount Baptist Church because I like it. Because it benefits me. For those of you that have had interaction with people from different cultures, Muslims have the same attitude. They pray. They serve Allah. They give when they go to Muslim prayer at a masjid or a mosque. Some extreme Muslims will break that down in a few weeks. They will go as so far as to declare jihad and die. Give their lives by taking the lives of others because they're wanting to get out of hell. It's about them. We can go back to old school pagan religions around the world to where people gather in jungles around rivers and waterfalls and they believe that there is a certain demonic spirit or a higher power that is controlling the rivers and controlling the rainfall. And they go and they get the precious produce that they have produced by the sweat of their brow and by the blood of their hands. And they present that so that things will go well with me. And then we hear are in the great commonwealth of Virginia. Most of us know about Jesus Christ. And the question 
that the Bible is posing to us from a narrative thousands of years old is do we serve God because He's worthy or do we serve God out of some personal benefit? Whether that benefit is temporal or whether it's eternal. You see, what we've done, church, is by and large across the Christian world is we've sold people a false bill of goods. We've sold people a gospel of life enhancement that if you follow Jesus... He'll help you with your problems. He'll fix your marriage. He'll help you de-stress when you're stressed. But it's all about us. And I'm not even going to ask for an amen. Are we all still okay? Second question. What would it take for you to rebel against God and compromise on what you know to be true? You know, honestly, I think so much of the compromise that we see in our world today is not by people who don't know any better. The Bible tells us very clearly in Romans chapter 2 that even the pagans, even the ones who don't even have the knowledge of Jesus Christ, have the law written on their conscience. It's people who have compromised. Now, very clearly, you say, Jeff, are you saying that we should never compromise? It depends on what on. If you're out on vacation with your family and you want to go to Burger King and your family wants to go to McDonald's, go ahead and give them go to McDonald's. When it comes to issues of faith, when it comes to the divinity of Jesus, when it comes to the point of life, we can't compromise because it costs too much. We all realize how fast life is, how quick it is. Students, I encourage you to go talk to your parents or or your grandparents. Or, well, you may not want to do this because then you would be telling the person that you think that they're Older, But go find someone and say, tell me how life speeds up. And our older brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning can say that the older you get, the faster it what? Faster it goes. Life is going so quick. And what Satan wants us to do is to do like the Levite who knows God's truth but says, you know what? This will be a good deal. This will be a good deal. So what I can do is just compromise here in order to reach more people. Listen, in Rocky Mount Baptist Church, we cannot compromise on the truth. And I know sometimes the things that I say from the pulpit are very strong. And honestly, with the history of Virginia Baptist, there's not been a whole lot of that. I know it may be new. Some of you might, well, why does he get so worked up? Listen, because people are dying and going to hell every single day. When hell stops, when it retreats, when there's an absolute certainty that people will not go there, if there's any chance of that, sure, I'll calm down a little bit. I'll tone it down. But listen, Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. And what we see in churches so often is we compromise on everything. We compromise and we say, we've got to have this to get young people. We've got to have that to help the church grow. Listen, church growth, let that be a thing of the past and let us fall in love with Jesus, you see. Because when we fall in love with Jesus and we realize that it's not about us having a good life here or being saved from hell there, but that it's all about the love and the grace of Jesus, church growth naturally happens, you see. Offerings normally, they healthily go up. But when we think that God is there to give us a good life and that church is there so that we can find a place that gives us benefit, we are looking at it through the same eyes of a man who was so slanted by paganism, he thought that he could make an idol to God and it'd be fine. What would it take 
You say, Jeff, but it's not working. My life is not working. If I don't compromise somewhere, I don't know what I'm going to do. Do you realize that every single prophet in the Old Testament, by and large, was an absolute failure as far as results are concerned? Do you know that in every culture in the world, at every time, Jesus Christ would have been considered a miserable failure? No social standing, no class, no connections with the Roman government. Everybody in the religious establishment, the connection that they had with Jesus is that they hated Him. But yet Jesus lived His life, and at the very end, everybody left Him except for Mary Magdalene, His own mother, and John, who stood at a distance watching Him be brutalized and tortured to death. That, according to the world, and as far as results are concerned, that's a loser. But we know that God can take the most humble things when you refuse to compromise in your walk with Jesus Christ. When people at work try to get you to do something illegal and immoral. When they try to put pressure on you to say, you need to do this. You have the comfort. You have the foundation and the support of Almighty God saying, you know what? I will not sell my soul to the devil for ten pieces of silver, ten shekels and a shirt. I will not sell my life out for insurance. I will not give in because Jesus Jesus died to save me from hell and to glorify Him with everything. So it costs too much. I don't have enough to give for compromise. I bank account. I could empty all of it. But there's nothing that I could ever bring that would equal the gift that Jesus has given me, which is Himself. It's Himself. And I know we said last week, one of the saddest verses in the Bible was Samson coming to the end of his life to where he was still focused on himself. God, give me strength one more time. And he's there between the pillars to take vengeance upon the Philistines for my two eyes. I think one of the saddest verses in the Bible is in chapter 18 in verse 24 when Micah had his sellout preacher bought by a higher bidder and had his creations of his own religious mind stolen. And then notice what he says. You take my gods that I have made and the priest and go away and what have I left? What do I have left? You took the person that was tickling my ears. You took the person that made me feel good even though I knew what he was saying was not true. You took the creations of my own mind, a God that I've made in my own image. What do I have left? You see, when we make God into an idol... When that idol is stripped away, we have nothing left. That's why you can go into churches all across America. And you can look, you can go in and say, this place is deader than a doornail. There's more life at a Roman Catholic wake. There's more life at a funeral visitation after it's taken place than here. And I have friends in the ministry that go in and say, we're surrounded by people who need Jesus. Some churches that are all white, now in predominantly all black areas, all Latino areas, immigrants, and how many people? I could tell, we would be here till five o'clock. I could tell you story after story after story because they've made God into their own image that says Jesus is there for people like me. And if everything doesn't fit my idea, and it doesn't make me feel good, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. And when those false things are taken away, people say, I have nothing left. The voice of Jesus is all in this text. Some of you are like, bro, Jeff, I thought 
that that message last week was a Debbie Downer. Man, I don't know what I'm feeling. It feels awkward. It feels tense in here. But the message of Jesus is the opposite. When we lose the job and we have the family problems and when we're pressured by so many people and we say, God, if these things are taken away, if I don't compromise, these things will be taken away. What do I have left? And Jesus shouts through the fog, You have me! You have me! I promise to never leave you and never forsake you. If you would simply, through the battle, trust me, I am stronger. I am is a song that we sing often. I am mighty to save. But what we've done in America and Christianity is we've given the idea that it's all about us. So the final question is, have we truly repented? Have we turned from a me-centered life To a life that says, you know what, God? I deserve to go to hell. I don't deserve a life of value here. Half of the things that I've done, if you brought those to account, I would follow my face naked before you with no excuse available. God, I know deep down inside my heart, even though my excuses rise to the surface, that I am guilty. But I know that you gave your son Jesus for me. And I know that when I heard the gospel message, I repented of my sin. And it is only because of Jesus that I can be saved. Listen to a statement that an old preacher made, Paris Reedhead, many years ago. He says, a repentant heart is a heart that has seen something of the enormity of the crime of playing God and denying the just and righteous God the worship and obedience he deserves. Why should a sinner repent? Here's the reason. Because God deserves the obedience and love that he's refused to give to him. Not so that he'll go to heaven. If the only reason is that he repents is so it'll go to heaven, it's nothing but trying to make a deal or a bargain with God. Repentance is not a two-way street. It's you coming to God and giving everything to Him. And if you're saved, you love Jesus, you've walked with Him for decades, I'll remind you of a story. Two young Moravians, two young Germans... Hundreds of years ago when slavery was still legal in the British Empire. There was an atheist slave owner at a small island in the Atlantic. He had two to three thousand slaves and he would not allow one missionary or one preacher to come and preach the gospel to his slaves. When he moved there and he bought the plantation, he says, I'm done with God. A slave owner denying his slaves even the opportunity to hear about Jesus who could save them. These two young Moravians, these two young German believers came to the point where they said, what we must do, because God had placed a desire on their heart that everybody else thought was crazy. And they said, we will sell ourselves, get this, track with this, we will sell ourselves into slavery to become slaves with the slaves so that we could share the Gospel. And as they stood on that boat, and as it slowly departed, all of the Moravian brothers and sisters in Christ were there flooding the docks. The account says there are many people that told them, are you sure? Are you sure? And as the boat pulled away, the account says that they linked arms like brothers standing in an ancient battle formation. And one of them raised his hands and he said, may the Lamb that was slain receive the reward of His suffering. May the Lamb who was slain Receive the reward of his suffering. And they went. 
their friends knowing that they would never see them again. Why do you serve God? Why do I follow Christ? The invitation is a question for you and the Holy Spirit to deal with right now.